way up high on my list of favorite Christmas movies is White Christmas with Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye. It's a musical comedy. It's very lighthearted, except for the opening scene. Strangely, this comedy opens up on a very solemn note. Uh, the movie begins with an, a division in the army, men who are stationed in Europe during World War II, and they're in high-risk territory. It's a very dangerous time for them, but it's Christmas Eve. And so Bing and Danny put on this ragtime show in an effort to uh, lift the troops' spirits. And everybody's having a good time. They're laughing and they're clapping along until the last number when Bing Crosby stands alone on the stage and sings that famous song. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, just like the ones I used to know, where the treetops glisten and children listen to hear sleigh bells in the snow. And as he sings the song, all of the soldiers bow their heads, their eyes to the ground. And it's a profoundly sad moment that right there, leaning on their rifles, they, they share this solemn memory together of what Christmas once was back home, but, but no longer in the world in which they find themselves now. Y'all, when I watched that, that movie, we watched it just the other day, I choke up during this opening scene because that's the way it really was. I mean, truly, for these soldiers in the war, there would be no white Christmas for them. No time with their families. No guarantee of, of next Christmas. With, with presents and music and food and warmth and hugs and stories told around the fireplace. No, they were going to spend their Christmas dodging the falling bombs of the enemy. That's the way it really was. Now, I, I expect that none of us have had a, a Christmas <laughs> quite like that one. But the truth is, I mean, if we're honest enough to admit it, Christmas, even at its very best, is also a season that brings melancholy with it. I mean, if you're, if you're grieving the loss of a loved one, almost for everyone, Christmas is a, a, a harder time than, than any other time of the year where grief is concerned. Uh, if you're lonely, then Christmas is usually the hardest time for loneliness. If, if you experience uh, stress and conflict within your family or your extended family, isn't it true that Christmas a lot of times brings that stuff to the surface in a way that no other season or holiday can? And for all of us, this year especially, we're, we're living in the shadow of a pandemic. It's been a very sorrowful and difficult year for us, and, and it's not letting up. It's just, it's just hanging over us like a dark cloud. And so if, if any of us had in mind a, a trouble-free, easy, and carefree kind of Christmas this year, well, it just doesn't seem like it's in the cards, not for you or for me. But maybe this year, in that case, maybe we'll all get a little bit closer to the center of what Christmas really is and how we're meant to really understand it. See, Christmas was never meant to be for us 
a, a time of wish fulfillment where all the circumstances in life fall just right and where everyone is happy and stress-free and without conflict and we all get the gifts that we wanted with gift receipts just in case and where calories don't count. You know, that would be, for, for most of us, I'm sure, the ideal kind of, of Christmas season. But y'all, that's just not the way it is. And even if it was, even Christmas at its best, it's not meant to be for us the fulfillment of the deepest longings of our heart. It's not meant to be the pinnacle of life for us. Because even all of those things, if they work themselves out just so, they're just circumstances. They're only circumstances. They can't be held on to, and you can't guarantee them next year. Now, the good news of Christmas is not sweet circumstances. The good news is that the gift of life itself has been freely given to us by God. Think about the words of the Apostle John. This is from 1 John as he writes this letter to the church and how it begins where he tells us the meaning of Jesus becoming human, of the incarnation. And look at what John says. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John calls Jesus the word of life, who was manifested to us. Jesus is not a supernatural figure somewhere off far away. And we admire him and we pray to him, but we don't really know who he is. No, John says he has really come. He's been manifest. Meaning he came to us in the flesh. We could see him. We could touch him. And we've beheld his glory, and now we proclaim him to you, that you may have fellowship also with him. What kind of cheap substitute would it be for God to merely sprinkle blessings and good circumstances upon us when we can enjoy fellowship with God himself for eternity, true fellowship with his own Son, See, when God comes to us at Christmas, it's not to say, may your days be merry and bright, and may all your Christmases be white. That's a wish. That's a circumstantial wish. Now, when God comes to us at Christmas, he comes all the way in and gives us the gift of himself. Something, or, or more appropriately, someone who transcends all of life's circumstances certainly at their worst, but even at their best. We have a hope better than all of it. And so as we look further into the Christmas story today, as we look at Luke chapter 2, uh, one thing we're going to notice is the absence of easy circumstances. 
They're just not in there. It's astounding to us just how harsh and difficult the birth narrative is. Um, Things weren't easy. But we also notice an exceedingly great joy, an overwhelming joy, because of what God is doing in sending his son to us and for us. So let's look again at what our children read to us a moment ago from Luke chapter 2, what Linus declares to Charlie Brown in uh, the Charlie Brown Christmas, uh, this just infinitely great and wonderful scripture. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse uh, 6. While they uh, were there, while Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Luke states all of this so matter-of-factly, as if it's not really so strange that, that Mary and Joseph have nowhere to stay, that they have no warm or even remotely sanitary place to give birth, and that it's not strange that there's nowhere suitable for Jesus to lay his head, that he's, he's laid down in a manger. That's a feeding trough for livestock. That functioned as his, as his crib. Y'all try to imagine if the royal couple were pregnant and ready to give birth only for the hospital to reject them and turn them away, and the royal couple has to go out and deliver their baby back behind the dumpster. That would be an international scandal. 24 hours on the news cycle. I mean, heads would roll, and people would be appalled that any family, let alone the royal family, would be treated so harshly and disgracefully. No mother and child should have to endure that kind of treatment. And yet that's basically, that's how the Son of God found his way into the world. You talk about the royal family, the ultimate royal family, Mary and Joseph, giving birth to Jesus, and yet it was, I mean, essentially it happened out back behind the trash. Now, I I want us to keep in mind that as distasteful and humiliating as this scene is, is playing out, this is actually exactly what God intended. I mean, God is, this is playing out perfectly to script. None of it's an accident. God meant for it to be this way. And really, this is in keeping with how the whole birth account of Jesus goes. I mean, think about what we talked about last week, where the angel Gabriel goes where? He goes to Nazareth, this backwoods town that nobody held in high esteem. And he goes to a nobody, a person no one's ever heard of. Her name is Mary. And he says, through your womb... God's going to bring his son into the world? How humiliating. We looked two weeks ago at Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus, his family tree. And we talked about the fact that Matthew very intentionally brings up the fact that there are all these unsavory characters and humiliating, sinful events that took place in the lives of the folks that preceded Christ, that are in his own family tree. What is God doing in all of that? Clearly, God is not interested in scoring style points with us. 
Clearly God is communicating something to us deeper than our own assumptions about greatness and, and dignity and what makes someone significant. God is doing things the opposite way. And that becomes even more pronounced as, as the story unfolds. Look at where the birth announcement goes. Look in verse six, or verse eight, rather. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Okay, finally, we see some glory. Right? Bright, shining angels, heavenly hosts, right? That's, that's what we expect. That's more like it. But even here, in the midst of this glorious announcement, we're meant to be struck by the humility of the circumstances. To whom is the glory being revealed? To some shepherds, Luke says, who were keeping watch over their flock by night. Shepherds were not men of high reputation. They would have been considered outcasts, uh, leftovers, people who were given very little to no attention at all. They would have certainly been poor men, probably illiterate men, and they're out in the fields doing this lowly work in the middle of the night. It's like the, the, the B team here, the JV. They're out there working while the rest of the world is asleep. And it's into that void, into that nothingness, that the glory of God breaks through. Again, how does this make any sense? I mean, if, if God wanted to make known the birth of his son, I mean, this is the savior of the world. It's a fairly significant announcement. Where should he have started? Where would you and I have started in making this announcement? Well, we would have a, a, a pyramid, right? Starting from the top, where does the announcement need to go? Well, first we need to take it to the king in the palace, right? The most important one of all. And then we need to go to the priests who are in the temple. And then we need to go to the rabbis, the scholars, the teachers who are in the synagogues. And perhaps, most of all, we should, we should take a feast day where everyone is going to be crowded into the city center of Jerusalem and make an announcement there where we're sure to have a captive and faithful and, and anxious, excited audience. They would want to hear this good news, surely there. I mean, is the Lord just this bad at marketing himself? What is he doing? Well, this is a point that we've, we've tried to make basically every week of Advent. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna, not going to belabor it too much again. 
but it just continues to, it continues to show up. And so uh, I don't want us to miss it. Think about what God is communicating in the circumstances of the birth of Christ. Remember, and I've said this before, Luke is not giving us information only. He's communicating meaning. We're meant to understand there's meaning in the account. All throughout this story, we've seen God taking lowly people from lowly places and God himself coming down low to meet them there. And craziest of all, God brings forth his own dear son in lowly fashion, having him laid down in a feeding trough after his birth. The idea being that when God comes down for the lowly, he doesn't do it while holding his nose. That he's forced to be with us, but he's ready to get out as quickly as he can. He doesn't want us to infect him in the process. No, when God comes down low, he comes all the way in. And he makes himself lowly with us and for us. And y'all, this is what the Christmas story over and again is telling us. The, the, the message of Jesus is not good advice for the upwardly mobile. Here's how you rise above your sin and your circumstances and become great. Here's how you, you discover your best self and, and live your best life. That's what so much of, of the world is attempting to do all the time. Uh, uh, Self-improvement, perfection. Taking what is real and, and stretching for what is ideal. And that simply is not the message of Christianity. The message of our faith, the message of Christmas, is God coming down to us. Not God beckoning us up toward him with good advice, better rules, uh, or a lower bar that we could all reach somehow. No, God comes down to us. The ideal becomes real. He comes all the way to the bottom into our weakness, into our poverty and our sin and our darkness. Because, y'all, that's what we really are. We're not decent people who with a little polishing could become something really great. We are truly weak and poor, sinful, lost people. We are incapable of saving ourselves. And so God, in his great love, God comes down low. And so Christmas is communicating to us that there is no one, nobody, who is beyond the reach of God's grace. Not Mary, nor Joseph. Not the poor shepherds in the fields. No one is so obscure that God cannot see them and value them. And no one is so sinful and lost that God cannot forgive them and save them. We're not just reading good information about how Jesus got here. God is communicating something about why Jesus came to us. And what was true then is still true now. You are not so obscure that God does not see you and love you. You are not so lost that God cannot forgive you and save you. 
And see, when we recognize what Christmas is about, what it really means, then it starts to make sense to us the way God planned it out. That it would happen in places like Nazareth and then Bethlehem, that the announcement would be made to shepherds out in the fields in the middle of the night, that they would be the ones to receive the first invitation because that's how God is choosing to work his grace into the world. Those who were considered outsiders living in darkness are now brought inside and exposed to the great light of God's mercy. They are the ones given the good news, first of all. And what is that good news? Well, let's, let's revisit it. It's too important for us to gloss over. But the angel said to them in verse 10, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you, you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. You notice what the angel does. He instructs these shepherds to trade in their great fear for great joy because I bring good news. There is no room anymore for great fear, only great rejoicing, because good news has come. And the good news, the angel says, is for all the people. Today there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And all of us, all of us right now, ought to bask in the glory and the beauty and the wonder of this new reality. I mean, no matter how many times you've heard it, no matter how many times I've heard it or even preached it, God has brought good news for you, for all the people. God has brought a Savior for you. Today, a Savior has been born for you. What we could never do on our own, God has done for us, for you and me, by his grace. Now, if that doesn't stir you, if that doesn't ignite your affections and your sense of awe over the goodness of God, well, it may be that you or I, that we feel entitled to the good things that God has given us, and so they're not all that great. Or maybe we feel like we're good enough on our own and we don't need what God came to give us through Jesus Christ. Or maybe we've just become numb to the story. We've heard it so many times that it's old news. Whatever the reason may be, if we're not stirred by this, we need to take a cue from the angels. You know, if anybody would have known what was about to happen, it would have been the angels. They're with God in heaven all the time. They're not easily impressed, sure, right? Because they're, they're always in the presence of Almighty God. I mean, if anybody would have kind of yawned at this good news, perhaps it would have been the angels. But no, they are enthralled. They can't get over what God is doing in the sending of his son. Look at what they say. It says, suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude, thousands upon thousands, of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest 
and on earth peace among men with whom God is pleased. The angels cannot get over what God is up to. And we should feel the same way. And you notice what they're doing at the same time the angels are pointing upward to the glory of God. First and foremost, it's God's glory. And then they're pointing downward to the expression, the outcome of this glory as they look upon us, that there is peace now among men. And the kind of peace that we're talking about, it's not the sugary kind of peace that we imagine that all the people just kind of get along. Uh, That's not a bad thing. We should strive for that. But that's not what the angels are saying. This is the true peace that only salvation can bring. Uh, The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 said, We have been justified by faith, and therefore we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have peace with God. Because God sent his Son for us, we now have reconciliation and relationship with God himself unbroken forever. That's the peace that we've been given, that God in his glory delighted to give. Now, how how should we respond? Um, Well, we just talked about taking a cue from the angels who are overwhelmed with God's goodness and glory. But let's also take a cue from the shepherds. When we hear this good news of great joy, We ought to be like them. Look at how the shepherds set the example for us. What do they do? Do they hang around and debate the finer points of this proclamation? Do they go back to work thinking that was interesting? (laughs) No, but verse 18, "When when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then to see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And so they came in a hurry. They found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. The response is urgency, amazement, worship, and even evangelism. The shepherds were eager to relay the announcement that they had been given. They were eager to share what they had been told and what they were now seeing with their own eyes. Y'all, everyone to whom God has revealed his grace is totally awestruck in this story, despite the fact that no circumstances seem to have changed. And I want us to consider that for a moment. Everybody in the story is glorifying God. They're wondering, they're treasuring, they're worshiping, they're doing all the things that, that we would expect them to do. It only makes sense that they would respond like this. But we notice nothing has actually changed, nothing, nothing tangible, nothing circumstantial. 
I mean, at, at the close of this portion of the account, what we just read, it's finished now. You notice the, the, the poor shepherds are still poor shepherds. They went back. Back where? Back into the pasture to do their job, glorifying and praising God, right? But their, their station in life hadn't changed. Mary and Joseph, at the end of this account, Mary and Joseph are still out in the cold, and baby Jesus is still in the feeding trough. I mean, in one sense, nothing's changed, and yet truly everything has changed. And it depends entirely upon how we look at it. Are we looking only at circumstances, only at what we see and experience in the here and now, or are we looking at what God has declared and what God has accomplished in the sending of his son, what the angel has proclaimed and promised. Because one reality clearly dominates and overwhelms the other, but we have to be willing to see it. Y'all, it is human nature for us to place our hope in our circumstances. Because that's what we can see. That's what we can touch. That's what's right in front of us. That's where real life takes place. And so it's so very natural for us to pin our hopes on the here and now. And that's why, by the way, that's why all the Christmas movies end the way they do. I mean, if we think about it, how do they end? They, none of them end on a minor note. No, Bing Crosby saves the day and falls in love with Rosemary Clooney. And it snows in Vermont. We finally have a white Christmas, just like the ones we used to know, and everyone ends merry and bright. That's the way it's supposed to happen. Kevin foils the burglars and is reunited with his family and reconciled with his mom. Uh, Clark gets his Christmas bonus, plus 20%. George Bailey, the entire town shows up to his house and rescues him from bankruptcy in prison. Ralphie gets his BB gun. The Grinch brings the presents back to Whoville, and they carve the roast beef together. No, that's the way it's meant to be. That's the wish that we all hope will be fulfilled. Not just at Christmas, but in all of life, that everything works itself out just so. Because that's what's right here and now. That's what we can see and taste and touch. But I want to remind you about what John said, what we looked at at the beginning of this message. John, the Apostle John, did not say, and Jesus sprinkled down his blessings upon us, and we looked into the clouds and thought about what he must be like. No, John says, what we have seen and held what we have experienced, the word of life which was manifested to us. This is not wish fulfillment. This is not us trying to use our intuition to think about what God must be like and hope that he'll throw us a bone every now and then and do us some good. No, he's really come down for us. And we've seen him and held him and we've fellowshiped with him and we proclaim him to you that you might have fellowship with him also. Y'all, Jesus Christ entered into 
our circumstances. He entered right into our present reality, the good and the bad. He came for it all. And he didn't come to improve upon those circumstances, but to give us a hope that transcends them. Whether you're the king in the palace or the shepherd in the field at midnight, Jesus Christ came to give you a hope greater than anything in this world can touch. It's the baby laid in the the lowly manger, right? How do we make sense of that? Well, that same baby who eventually grew up was nailed to a rugged cross. How do we make sense of that? Except that God himself deliberately chose to come down low, to experience all of our weakness and poverty and shame and even the suffering that we had deserved because of our sin. He experienced all of it so that he might bring to us good news of great joy in himself. That's what Christmas is. And so may we respond in keeping with the angels. May we glorify God at this good news. And in keeping with the shepherds, may we urgently, joyfully, Worship him for who he is and what he's done. Y'all, by faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved. And that means that Christmas for us is never a wish for days that are merry and bright. No, Christmas is a certain and eternal hope upon which we will forever stand. Let's pray together. Father, I ask this morning that you will solidify and and plant the seeds of these truths deep down into our hearts. That where we we are facing, all of us, adverse circumstances this year, some of us uh, worse than others, some of us more uh, painful than others, but we're all in this together. We all have this cloud that hangs over us this year. None of us are going to get the circumstances that we hope for and dream about. And Father, I pray this, this Christmas, in some strange sense, I pray that we would be glad. Not glad for the hardship, but glad for the fact, Lord, that you will use this moment in time to bring us face-to-face with Jesus Christ, the baby born in a manger, the Savior hung on a cross, the man, Isaiah tells us, acquainted with sorrows and grief, who was crushed for our sins. Father, thank you that when we look into this incredible account in Luke chapter 2 that we are not um, fooled into thinking that you laid out the red carpet for Jesus, even though that's what he would have deserved, but that we see what really was. Exposure to the elements, loneliness, 
being unseen and unnoticed except for a, a band of, of dirty outsiders with their sheep in tow. Father, this is how you chose to come. Not through ease and comfort. Not through, not through some grand, impressive uh, entrance. But lowly and humble and as- astonishingly merciful. Father, help us to see it and to savor it today. That we have a Savior who entered into our darkness, our weakness, who took on our shame and condemnation so that he might bring us to you and that we might have fellowship with him, peace with God. So, Father, I pray that wherever we find ourselves uh, at home or on the road, that whether our Christmas is peaceful or full of conflict, whether we are healthy or sick, that whatever our circumstances may be, that we will look to Jesus Christ and that our hearts will be filled with a sense of urgency and joy and awe and gladness. Because we have a hope that transcends merely what we see. We have a hope that transcends this present time. We have good news of great joy for all the people. Let us bask in the light of your son Jesus today. And let this Christmas be merry and bright. (laughs) Um, Because your light has come into the world. Let him be our true focus and our true delight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.